Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very exciting day today, interviewing David Crane and Jeffrey Cleric, two of the most incredible writer-producers from Friends to Dream On to Episodes. These guys are at another level. And before I get started, I want to thank you guys so much for everything. Your support has been amazing. I'll never stop saying it. I'm very grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening, passing it on to your friends and people you know and subscribing. It's free. Hopefully it's provided a great resource for all of you that are listening. And when I look at David Crane and Jeffrey Cleric here, it is abundantly clear what I want to talk about. If you can figure out a way like these guys have to have a personal relationship for what's amounted to three decades and also have the kind of ability to have a professional relationship for almost the same amount of time. It's pretty obvious that you're going to have the ability to do a lot of things better than the other people who are out there because in the end every job you're in it's all about how you can navigate with people how you can figure out how to be in a situation where you come into a different work environment and to be able to get through it with all the different personalities And what they ended up doing was creating a bond between themselves with deep love and respect personally that carried over professionally that helped them actually 
have a stronger almost force field when it came to shielding all the disappointments, the negativity, and the things in the business that are created around you that can affect you. They didn't necessarily know what they were doing in the beginning. They didn't know how to run shows. They didn't know how to produce shows. But because their work was so extraordinary, they were able to leapfrog over everybody else. And then once they did, they had the relationship together that was strong enough to help them get through the toughest of times, not just when they got home at night, but in those sound studios where shows were being shot. And so to me, it's pretty obvious if you can figure out a way to create a bond with somebody, to figure out a way to align with a person in your profession that you trust, that you respect, that you can work with and create ideas or form partnerships, and you're doing the kind of work that's so much stronger and far beyond everybody else, and you can figure out a way to form that bond and that partnership that can keep you strong in the worst of times and the best of times, both professionally and personally, I can pretty much guarantee you that you're going to have a chance to have the kind of career that David Crane and Jeffrey Cleric have. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Very exciting. Very, very, very happy today. And I'm going to get right to it and give my guests David Crane and Jeffrey Cleric the proper introduction. When I'm done, they hopefully will still be alive and ready to do this interview, I pray. All right, David Crane is best known as the co-creator of the long-running series Friends. The series ran for 10 seasons and earned him numerous awards, including an Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series. Crane also co-created the classic HBO comedy Dream On, for which he received an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series. Currently, he's co-creator of the Showtime Network's comedy episodes. The Showtime BBC series returns later this year with its fifth and final season. Other co-creator, Jeffrey Cleric, sitting right beside him here, is an amazing writer with credits that include Dream On, Half and Half, Inc., Mad About You, latter of which earned him a Golden Globe Award and an Emmy nomination for his work. Cleric and Crane together have been partners for 28 years and have shared outstanding professional successes unmatched by the majority of writers and producers in their field. For their work, the pair have received four Emmy nominations for outstanding writing as well as one BAFTA, and two Golden Globe nominations for Best Comedy Series. Most recently, the two received the Creative Impact Award at the 2017 Nantucket Film Festival and were featured creators at the 2017 Tribeca Film Festival 
for their work on the last season of episodes. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. This is going to be amazing. Trust me when I say this. Oh, God. Amazing. <laughs> I don't want to put any pressure on these guys, Ew. but this is going to be amazing. Please welcome my guest today. What an honor. David Crane and Jeffrey Cleric. How are we doing so far? I don't know. Are we amazing yet? <laughs> Not so far. All right. Jeffrey, you sound like an old Borscht Belt I comedian. I am an old Borscht Belt comedian. <laughs> it's like I'm listening to Jackie Mason's I, manager. I did. I agree. Grew up at the Concord. We used to go to Grossinger's. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Who was the first stand-up comedian? Tony Fields. Oh my God! For those of you who don't know, Tony Fields. She was an incredible, heavy-set comedian who was very, very blue. Her comedy was like Def Jam, and she was white, but she mixed it with family and relationship humor, and she ended up passing away. But she used to do a lot of these kind of theaters. Also, did the summer theater tour and the round around New England, around the yeah, country, yeah. and an amazing, amazing forgotten comedian yeah. that shouldn't be yeah, forgotten. No, I, I adored her. And it was great. I remember I, I was friendly with some one of the guys who was in the show. And so I was standing backstage and I watched her get ready to go on. And I just saw this kind of sad looking woman kind of hunched over, I swear to you. And I thought, who's that? Somebody's mother? And they said, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Tony Fields. And she it was like somebody shoved a thing up her ass. And she stood up and she went, and came out and everybody went nuts and I got a chill. You know, I just thought, okay, I like this. I like this pretend business. I want to do this. I like this business of depression of, of mixed with... people think you're happy when you're not. <laughs> that gives me joy. Well, you guys look happy, though. Yeah, acting. <laughs> I'm happy. Well, he's acting. Yeah, he's I'm happy. happy. And I'm happy-ish. There you go. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, Jeffrey, I'm going to go with you first. You have this combination of the light and the darkness smashing together <laughs> and the darkness is being pushed down, but you have the light up top. Yeah. David, you have just the light. Am I wrong? <laughs> I, I, I think right. that's probably true. Uh, for, I mean, everyone has some darkness, but yeah, I would say for the most part, certainly between the two of us, it's hard to live with. <laughs> I do my best. Yeah, not enough. No, we the the characters in our show, Sean and Beverly, are very much based on ourselves. The us. characters in the episodes. In episodes, yeah. And uh, when we first pitched the show, we said that basically uh, Sean, which is more me, uh, sees the glass as half full, and Beverly thinks the glass is an idiot. <laughs> and that's pretty much us. I don't think when you're coming in here that you have a personal relationship and a business relationship, but it fascinates me that for 28 years or whatever it is, you've been working together and playing together, and yet you're here and you have an energy about you that's just so powerful. And I wonder how it's possible because, look, you know, I was married for 13 years. I'm proud of that time I had. And I didn't even work with her. And it was difficult to make the things work the way they're supposed to work. And I'm sure I'm speaking for everybody in the world who's in a relationship that knows that it's not easy. Um, we're just really lucky. I mean, I used to think before I knew I was gay, I thought my fantasy was to, to end up with somebody who was like my best friend who we could be together and laugh together and and have just 
sharing everything together. And I found that, which is, thank you, God, very, very rare. And so there's never a time where I feel like, oh, I'm so bored or I'm, I can't wait to get away from him. We've never been apart in 29 years. Yeah, we, we haven't spent like a night apart in 29 years. So and tonight will be the first night, <laughs> <laughs> depending on how this goes. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's true, isn't it? I mean, it really is. And um, and the work is very much an extension of what's wonderful about the relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, we 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 tend to finish each other's sentences a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> um, but but that's kind of. That's sort of what we, we do. Yeah. <laughs> That's there, who we are. And when, when we're writing, it's very much just, it's, uh, it's like improvising, like, like we're, we're tossing lines back and forth and back and forth. Uh, we, we rarely go off and write individually. Um, we sort of write together and then we'll take it separately and mm -hmm. do a little pass and then come back together and share, yeah. share our notes. But, uh, yeah it's, yeah, it's it's like we channel these people. I mean, we do the accents for the British it's, people. It's really appalling when we're doing the yeah. accents. Yeah. Oh, what did they say about my English yeah. accent, Jeff? Someone once in England said because I thought I sounded great. I thought <laughs> yeah I could pass. Yeah, and they uh, they said uh, Jeffrey's uh, English accent was borderline racist. <laughs> but it's why it's good that like we don't have a writers' room. It's just the two of us, and so there's not one writer no. in five seasons that you trust to bring in and say, can we just bounce this off no. you and pay you a little bit of money? That's the word, trust. <laughs> we agonize over every yeah, comma, we're not fast. every period, every word, every... Money. Yeah, no, we really do. We, we, we do draft after draft. And part of the reason why it, it makes it easier that it's just the two of us is, I mean, obviously it's hard in that you don't, you can't hand a script to anyone. You can't like walk away and go, hey, can you just punch this up? Um, but the upside is that uh, you don't have to be with people. <laughs> That's more you. Yeah, I mean, to me, I hated sitting in a room with a bunch of people and, and trying to be nice, you know, and and listening to them pitch stupid shit and me saying, oh, yeah, uh huh, mm, mm, maybe, okay. And it just, you save so much time not having to listen to people and just do what you know in, instinctively is right. But there's not yeah. one not, episode, no. one friend where you're like, we're no. just not really sure about this one. Could you take a look at this and tell me what you think? No, you know, we, we pretty much trust each other's taste. And I don't trust my own all the time, uh, but uh, but I trust his. So chances are, if there's something that we're both feeling that works, then we feel confident enough to at least keep it in that draft. And then we'll do another draft. We'll read it. And Also, you don't have to share with anybody. When did Showtime stop giving you a note? Notes-wise, they actually Never gave really us gave us yeah notes. very very few notes. I mean, maybe and we because we write uh, the whole season before we shoot a frame of it. We it's not like a show where you're uh, writing it while you're shooting it and you're throwing tracks in front of the train. We write the whole season and then we have one table read where we read all eight. Yeah, nine it's, it's like a five-hour day and we'll read the entire season. And and that's when they give us notes and they, you know, it's you're giving notes on an entire season 
and usually it's, it's about really like minor. yeah and they'll be like okay episode one here's a thought right. that's it episode two here's a thought it's nothing like the experience we've had anywhere else I'm embarrassed to say that in my entire career, I have never known of any show doing a table read for all eight episodes yeah, and uh -huh. yeah. writing them all in advance and having the actors there in advance. I've it's never been great. The table read day, it was phenomenal because you, you know going in, you're going to like a six, five, six hour show with a lunch break in the middle. It's like Nicholas Nickleby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we would just, yeah, you you just go in and you get to see the whole arc of the season. You, you, it wasn't that thing that you've had on so many shows where you get about halfway through and you're like, where are we going? Yeah. Does anyone have a clue where we're going to end the season? Any thoughts? Anybody? I mean, we get to figure all that out in advance. And just so our audience knows, the normal process for a show is you do a table read normally the first day of the tape week and that's the lightest day of the week. You do the table read. Sometimes the actors will go do some fittings or do some things. Maybe they'll work on a scene, one scene that might be a little bit difficult or something. And that's how it works every week of each sitcom. There's not a situation where there's all eight being yeah. read in one day. I've never heard of that before. Have you ever heard of that before? No. no. And the other thing that we do it, and it, it, it's, it really sets it apart, is we... Uh, Crossboard the whole season. We don't shoot episode to episode to episode. We shoot the entire season as like a giant movie. Um, and we shoot it all in London, you know. It's not shot here at all. So we, we go to England for about four months. And for example, if, if we're in Sean and Beverly's house, we shoot out every scene that takes place in Sean and Beverly's house throughout the season. So you'll shoot from uh, episode one, might have one scene in Sean and Beverly's house, then you, you move on to see, uh, uh, yeah, scene like episode, two, yeah. episode two, and, and you get all their house done first out of order. And the reason why, just so our audience knows that they do that is because obviously when you're putting a show together and you're putting the line producers, putting the budget together, exactly. you want to make the show as efficient as possible and save as much money as possible. So why keep going back to the same location, get the location for what you need, shoot all the scenes in that place. And that's how they do it, which is very difficult and challenging for television actors to be able to figure out their tone and how they're supposed Sorry. to be in each each one don't know and, how they do and it. very hard for a director to keep track and understand what's necessary that makes it more difficult whereas film actors will know exactly how to do that oh yeah no our cast is we're so lucky they are so spot on they know exactly where they're supposed to be what's coming next um, because you're right there is there is a certain amount of uh, preparation you've got to do and that we have to do because we're we're going in that day and Jeffrey directed this last season and really knowing okay because we're shooting scenes from five different episodes today what just happened where's the character coming from where are they going and it's our, our cast is amazing. How do you get Matt's hair to stay the same? Do you have a flow bee on the set? <laughs> <laughs> He's like a chig of pet. <laughs> I'm curious because everything is set up the way you're talking about it to be as fiscally 
streamlined as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Why go to London when you can recreate it here? Because budgetarily, it was it was uh, prohibitive. We um, it was oh, oh, a yeah. third the price. It's a third there. the price. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. yeah, either did we. Knowing that you have to fly the actors first class there and keep them in the first class accommodations, it's, it's still it, cheaper because the crew is so much smaller. It's a third the size and it's fast and there is no craft service. You save hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> Why is there no craft service? They don't believe in craft service. There is no craft service there. No, once, once it, in the food morning, is mood. You have to have food. No. In the I lost 15 pounds this season. <laughs> <I swear. laughs> Trying to tell me Matt is bringing a box lunch. Matt's assistant brings pre-cooked food for him. Yeah, there's the crew gets a there is a there is a, a catering a truck. truck for lunch, but there isn't what you have on every set here. Where you've got that like enormous table filled with every food you've ever imagined. No, the, none of the, that. the people who cater orange is the new black. The actual prison, <laughs> <laughs> they do the food for our show, so it's very easy to lose weight. Yeah, and they they just in the afternoon they'll bring around a little oh, plastic a tea tray of very sad and a can of cookies. That's it, and that's it. So it's actually it's good because you don't have that thing that you get here where you're trying to shoot and you notice, oh, the guys just come on the set with the half of the avocados. Yeah, that's right. And suddenly all the work slows down because, yeah. oh, the crew is like drifting toward the avocados. I have this problem with myself in comedy that I don't laugh. When I was a young kid, my mother used to sit me in front of the black and white television and I used to watch the Three Stooges all the time, the physical comedy. And I would never laugh. And my mother thought there was something wrong with me. And then one day she heard me laughing hysterically and she ran in. She said, what happened? Well, Larry asked Curly what he thought. And Mo looked at both of them and said, every time you think you weaken the nation. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, that's what made you laugh. I said, yeah, the words. It was funny. It made me laugh. She Great. said, nothing else. So I want to share with you, when I watch episodes of episodes and I watch clips, I'm driving down here and I'm refreshing myself with scenes with my earbuds and I am laughing like a redheaded stepchild. Oh, I am laughing great. so hard. I can't control myself. And I'm at stoplights and people are looking over at me like, is this guy going to lick the glass next or something? I don't even know how to begin to explain to you how hard I laugh. I think it's part of the feeling I got about the show. And I hope you don't mind me saying this because there's another show that I loved that actually was canceled and brought back and probably canceled again with Lisa Kudrow on the comeback. Sure. But in your show, Matt's character is different. Lisa was a woman who had no control over anything. But in your show, he has a way of always getting back at people who take control over him. Yeah. But I'm even surprised it's the final season because it's so fantastic. Oh, well, that was our choice, by the way, uh, because the network wanted more. And we thought, you know what? Let's leave people wanting more. And uh, I thought, fuck them. They don't deserve it. <laughs> and that's Beverly and Sean. Yeah. Um, and and also, you, you're not getting more. Uh, I, I think there was... Uh, you know, rather than waiting till someone asks you to leave, it gave us a chance to put an end on it that we're really happy with. 
uh, and and that felt good. But we're like that at parties too. David would like to stay and schmooze with everybody and say goodbye. <laughs> I like to leave on a laugh, like when everybody's having a good time, so that when we're gone, they go, yeah, all right, let's leave. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's true though, right? No, it is. Yeah, yeah, no, he's, yeah, I'm, I'm much more like, oh, well, let's, and we no, so he's like, no, let's. So if I put her. a true serum in both your veins, oh. the showtime comes to you in your little soundproof booth, David, and says, we'd like to go another year. You say yes, and Jeffrey, you say no. No, I'd say, I'd, I would say, I'm sorry, fuck you. <laughs> you had our show and you squandered it. Uh, and I would say we've ended it exactly how we wanted to end it. I don't, and, and look, it, there's a bittersweet element to it because there are, uh, we love working with these people in terms of the cast and and it's been a, an amazing show to write, but I like that we've ended when it was time to end it. Yeah, we're starting to get reviews. Today we got, some, yeah. and yeah. it's sort of, it's very weird. Both our mothers died within two weeks of each other like two months ago. And the weirdest, most difficult part of this whole process is when we get like a rave review from somebody that I can't call my mother and say, you know what I mean? I mean, and I realized how much of my life and my career has been to impress my mother. And it's weird not having that anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, every time I read something nice that would give her some naches, it's like, you know, I can guarantee you that she's read it and she knows. I would love to think that. 30 years ago, I was married. My wife passed away and I was in a trip with one of my sons to New England. And I'm driving by this area. Something seems familiar here. Mm. And I pull over and I call one of my her relatives out of nowhere. And I just say, listen, I know this is a weird question that you haven't heard from me in a while. But where where is that cemetery that Diane is buried? It's right across from the Baptist Church on Main Street. Flashers on the Baptist Church from Main Street is right there. Ow. I go in with my son and we go to the grave site. Now keep in mind, this is the crazy part of faith that's just insane, is that if this person didn't die, my son wouldn't be here. So I'm there and he is 13, he's walking around and he says, Daddy, I, I, I feel something here. I, I feel something, there's a presence of somebody here. I know it's crazy, I've never told you that before, yeah. but I feel something. I said, I'm sure you do, I'm sure it's there. And that's why I believe that your mom knows that, and David, your mom yeah. knows what you're doing and is great, it's crazy. Yeah. So how do you deal with two tragedies when you're in the middle of this, well, we were actually, we, we, we finished this season a year ago, June. Yeah, we finished and we were done editing it by, yeah, before Christmas. Before so Christmas, so yeah. we actually, uh, we were able to just sort of deal with life without having to worry. We're still dealing with it. We're yeah. still packing up their apartments and we're, you know, stopping the mail. It's real. And the, the weird thing is how close together they both died. Yeah, in terms of I mean, time, what are yeah. the odds of I mean, that? it's just weeks apart. Weeks apart. So yeah, um, yeah, it's and it, it fortunately didn't happen while we were like in the midst of shooting this. Which and what makes hated. me kind of sad is in in this season there are all these references to my mother that I 
I always do that. I always sneak in little. So there's a, a bag of deli food and it's got Millie and Leo on the bag, you know, which is his father's name, my father's yeah. name. So, yeah, I, that that gives me joy. And I, I just wish she could have seen that because that would have given her so much happiness. You mentioned something earlier and you're making a joke of it, but you said before I knew I was gay. Most of our audience doesn't even understand how you start your life and when you figure out where you are. Everybody's different, but I had a crush on Buffalo Bob Smith. (laughs) (laughs) And when he touched Howdy, I think, oh my God, he's dreamy. And I thought, I'm three. How do I know this? But I knew it. And and they must have known it because they sent me to a shrink at three. At three. At three. And I knew why I was there. I mean, I remember it as if it happened yesterday. And uh, we were in his office and he had a dollhouse with little dolls and he had a truck. And he said, play with whatever you'd like. And of course, I drove the truck up to the dollhouse and rearranged the furniture <laughs> in the dollhouse. And it was sort of like, okay, game over. Right. But done. they still, they, they gave you boxing lessons. Yes, they, they did. They, well, because it was a time when you, you, you know, you just wanted the best for your child. And, and back then, it was not a life that any parent would wish on a child. I totally get it. So they tried to butch me up. So at three and a half after the shrink kind of went, it's a done deal. Uh, they signed me up for boxing lessons and they took me to the YMCA and I would stand on this table and this Palooka, this guy with the nose like that, you know, and he he put boxing gloves on me, which was insane because I could hardly lift my limp wrists with, with boxing <laughs> gloves. And he would say, hit me, come on, hit me, don't be a sissy, hit me, come on. <laughs> you know, and then we did that every Sunday uh, for a long time. I, I can still jab and uppercut. And I, I mean, I can, can. I can box. <laughs> if you God put me don't. on a table, <laughs> I, I can hit you. I don't know what it would have taken, you know, to, to get that point across. But it was during college when I was we were watching television. And apropos of nothing, my mother said, Jeffrey, do you like girls? And I thought, oh, I think this is the conversation. And I said, yeah. She said, I mean, besides Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> and I said, uh. And so we had the conversation and that, that was how it happened. And how did she handle it? She was fine. My father got up and left the room. And then uh, she started crying and then I started crying. And then the next day, it was as if we'd never had the conversation. It just was not spoken again. And that started really irritating me because I thought, wait a second, I just went through this cathartic moment with these guys and now they're pretending it never happened. What about you, David? Um, different, my parents were divorced. My, my father was like fine. Like when I was also in college and he totally got it. I don't think there's like a Thursday where you go, got it. I think it's sort of this, you know, and then, you know, you know, cause I, for me, there was a period of, uh, there was no like, howdy duty. No howdy duty for what me. about Mr. Green jeans? Oh, I loved Mr. Green jeans. Well, what's uh, in my pocket? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I think. Uh, yeah, there's a, there was a, a period of trying to 
trying to convince myself that I wasn't gay because it's easier if you're not, or at least it was then. Um, and so it was, there's a long sort of journey uh, there. Um, but at a certain point, you know, you, you have to kind of own your shit. And, um, uh, and I came out to my father when I was like 18, 19, and that was fine. But I knew my mother wouldn't take it well. So I actually didn't tell her till I was 30. And, and your dad never told her. No, they were divorced. And uh, it wasn't actually until we met and it was this serious relationship. And I thought, well, all right, I'm not going to keep this a secret anymore because I knew it would be upsetting. And, uh, and I told her and it was, of course, very traumatic. And what am I going to tell my friend? It's all these kind of cliched responses to what you think coming out. It was kind of boring. Uh, it's everything you could expect. And within 27, 28 years, she accepted me. <laughs> it took a while, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I remember the, the first time Jeffrey had a house on Fire Island. Um, and the first time I went and visited him there, I came back and I'd already told her. And, uh, and I, I said, how was your weekend? And she said, except for the deaths of my parents, it was the worst <laughs> weekend of my life. And I just sort of took a beat and I said, what'd you do? <laughs> hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. <laughs> and obviously when you were putting together your show, you wanted to do it with Matt. It wasn't a situation where let's think about who's going to be in this role. No. It was always about him. If it was, it because, was Matt or we wouldn't have done yeah. that show. But in terms of all the other actors, were you so hands-on that you didn't even hire a casting director? You just no, did it on your own? we had a casting director. In fact, we had one in, in England and one here. Yeah. And with each actor that came in, because this is something that's always unique for our audience to understand is the process of this and people coming in and sometimes people come in that you believe in and you think are going to be great and then they come in and they're not as prepared and they don't do great then there's people who come in who you're like i don't even know who this person is and they blow you yes. away in the cast were there people that came in who you had no idea about them or who they were or their talents and they just completely destroyed the other people and you were like fuck it we got to give this yeah, person the role it's like and i always say this it, it's it's so much like cinderella's slipper you know what i mean you you have to try that slipper on 
a thousand different feet before you get that fit, fit feet. Yeah. And um, it's 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 difficult because you'll go through many, many, many really talented named celebrity stars. And you just think, God, this is terrible. This isn't funny. This is clunky. And you, you, a lot of self-loathing. And then one person will come in and the slipper will fit and it's like a light comes on. And it's suddenly the words seem like someone's speaking and they're funny and they're, it's just like magic. And it, it takes thousands and it's such a, what would you call uh, crapshoot because for example we ended up with a different actress playing uh the part of beverly uh, because we had tried out hundreds of women and this particular woman came in and although we knew she wasn't right she was likable and and we hadn't found the actress and we yet. were up against the, the gun and so we said well, it's not how we saw her, but I don't think we're ever going to find her because we've seen everybody in the world. And so we hired her and we went to London and we did the table read, which we were talking about, which was all nine episodes in a row. And halfway through the first episode, we looked at each other and thought, oh, my God. This yeah. is this is not going to work. We, we've put the the wrong. She's, cin she's not Cinderella for this. Slipper. She's living uh, in this. <laughs> you know not, what I mean? It's like yeah. squeeze her little. So it wasn't the table read. It was after you were shooting the first half. No, no, we no, were no, at the table that read. That nine hour table read. Two days before we were starting shooting, and we realized. And she came to us at during a lunch break, and she said, "I can't do this. This is not right." And and I I thought. Thank God you said it, because we loved her, and she was she's a terrific actress. Why couldn't she do what you think? These parts are very, very specific, and you can have actors who are brilliant at dozens of roles, but they... How many people read for Chandler? Oh, my God, all of them. Yeah, and... And until he came in and did that with his yeah. voice, it was like, okay... Yeah, we were absolutely exactly what we were saying. We were convinced when we were doing Friends that we were convinced that, oh, oh this... It's the writing. It stinks. Yeah. And look, we had the same thing here on episodes. Um, Carol. I mean, it, it's oh, the two uh, Kathleen Perkins, who plays the the network executive. Um, we we heard all these women read it, and then we were feeling like it's okay. I thought it was funnier. It's not feeling it's not really funny. funny, and really talented, wonderful actors, but none of them right. And then Kathleen came in. And she read, she had this monologue um, from about halfway through the first season. Uh, and she just starts it. And we're looking at each other going, it, it's that moment where you get the chills and you go, oh my God, this is, this is. Yeah, it's such a relief when that yeah, happens. Yeah, it's what we wrote. Suddenly you're hearing what you wrote. And in the case of Beverly, um, we, um, we were like, a little concerned because we start shooting in two days and we don't have our lead actress and you know the show if, if you don't have that couple you don't have the show and and no one could do that part so you would had a casting process that lasted probably eight weeks oh yeah and now you have two days and you've already right. seen everybody I what do you do and one of the one of the uh, directions we gave to the casting people was uh, that we pictured Beverly as a, a young, and no offense mm -hmm. to Emma Thompson, but a younger Emma Thompson type. 
that's who we saw. You know, not conventionally beautiful, you know, but but attractive and likable and strong. Yeah, and, or and, Catherine Hepburn was our other sort of reference yes, point. Yes, Catherine Hepburn was our other. <laughs> and so we were so bummed out and sad after this table read. I said, we got to go out and do something. But normally there is second choice. This woman got the role out of... 300 people, there was number 300, there was number two, and there was her. Did you bring number two back in and try? No, there was no real number two. And what's interesting is um, the, the network kind of pushed us into hiring this person because she's she was a name and and she was lovely and did a beautiful job. She just wasn't particularly right for the part. So we went to the theater, right? Mm -hmm. And it was a, a British uh, production of an American play. And it was uh, The, the Little, Little Dog, Dog Laughed. Laughed. And the star of the play was this actress named Tamsin Gregg playing an American. And we we watched her and I thought, God, if she was British, <laughs> I right. swear to God, right? I said, if she were only British, she'd be perfect. She's what I pictured. She's exactly. And so we go back the next day to the office and we meet with the casting lady and we said, uh, do you know the actress Tamsin Gregg? That's who we really would, we pictured. And she said, well, Tamsin Gregg A is British, which we had no idea because she did a flawless American accent accent and she said and two we offered this to her and she was doing this play but now wait offer only yeah it was an without offer. your approval but but so we said but why didn't we see her and they said because she was doing this play which is closing you saw the final performance <laughs> and i thought oh my god Meant get, get the slipper. <laughs> We're back in business. So the next morning at 8 a.m., remember, she yeah. came up to the uh, our suite at, at, at the hotel we were staying in, and Matt met her at 8 a.m., and she read, and it was just as if she had been born to, to be this character. It was just, and as it turned out, she had done another show previously with Stephen Mangan, Green so Greenwing. So they have this relationship and they work together and you feel that history. And it was just, it was meant to be. Because I think uh, had that not happened, we would not be sitting here doing a fifth no, season. It's yeah. all fate. And that, we, we always said the same thing about Friends. It was, it was lightning in a bottle. Mm -hmm. When you think about all the different actors who could have played those parts, it yeah. would never have been what it was. It just, and that's why there are very few friends, you know what I mean? And very few Big Bangs and very few Roseannes. Yeah. And I mean, because that kind of chemistry is just so elusive and so. And you don't, you really with auditions, you just have the opportunity to basically hear them read a scene, two scenes. You don't know. Uh, it's, it's like getting married to someone after a few dates. So you have the history with Matt. Obviously, he's an executive producer on the project. He's reading with everybody. Was there ever a time where he took you aside after a bunch of reads and said, this is the one, and you said, oh, no, we think this is the one. No, but when he read with Stephen Mangan, I do remember that day, he read with Stephen Mangan, and we looked at each other, and we thought, this is Joey and Chandler chemistry. It's that kind of chemistry. It was like immediately, it, it was as if they had been doing it for years. It was just so effortless and fun. And you like those two characters together. 
And he's a very generous actor. I mean, it's very important to him that everybody feel included and that uh, it's not the Matt LeBlanc show, you know. He'd get offers to be on a cover of, of various magazines and he'd say, unless Tamsin and Stephen are on the cover with me, I don't want to do it. I mean, that's pretty rare. But he's the only person on the show that does have another voice. Are you saying he's never in five years exercised the voice? He's never gotten the script no, no, and no. said, you know, I don't understand no, why we're doing no. this here. No, and we kept, we kept, especially, look, he's not just getting script. He's playing a character named Matt LeBlanc. It, it, like with the first couple of episodes, we would send him the script and we would kind of brace ourselves. Because, I mean, look, the character of Matt LeBlanc does some pretty appalling things. And so we would we would wait for that phone call and it never came. Never came. And he always, he's been such an amazing sport. And he when we first pitched him the show, we took him to lunch, we pitched him the show, and he said, I'm fine. He said, I'm happy to be a punchline so long as it's a good joke. Why is the stereotype of a large penis always a great thing for a guy? <laughs> I did that because, here's a little name dropping, mm. but we were at a wedding with, with Brad and Jennifer. And <laughs> wow. I had, well, I, I'm like, I'm ducking. Oh, there from, it is. Yeah, really. Really? Jeffrey right. Ross used to have this great line. He used to say, you drop more names than Oscar Schindler. <laughs> <laughs> but it was true. I mean, and oh. it's not like we, we socialized with these people. No. But we were, uh, I was standing next to him. <laughs> in the bathroom and looking straight ahead. And I thought, <laughs> do I have to finish this? I, it was like torture. I just thought, this is an opportunity to see what's there. And it was, so I thought this would be a funny bit with, with, with Matt. Matt and Sean. And Sean and Matt and Merck. And, and so that's where that came from. Yeah, and we the, the first time we brought it up, it was an episode where Matt takes Sean to Las Vegas and he's sort of he's wowing him with his whole life and so the thing that Jeffrey pitched that I love was that it's it's the opposite of your your bathroom scene it's Matt going to him you want to see it <laughs> and we thought well that's a scene I well, haven't he seen talks, before yeah, he was talking about he said if you hadn't <laughs> been a writer what would you have been and he right. said I would have been a surgeon how about you and he said uh, probably a porn star. <laughs> yeah. I've got what it takes. Yeah. He said, want to see? And, and Sean going, no, no. But ultimately, Sean does go into see. Yeah, Matt goes, all right. And Matt gets up and goes into the bathroom. And a few seats. We stay on Sean for just a minute. And then Sean goes up to follow. And, and it just seemed like, oh, that's a... We, certainly the idea of uh, uh, an actor with a big dick... Uh, sure, we've seen that before, but but the do you want to see it conversation and then followed by Sean coming home and telling his wife about it. It's like a sea creature. People say, well, if you do a dick joke, it's easier to get a laugh with a dick joke than it is with another kind of joke. But the fact is, this is so smart. It's just incredible. Yeah, when you can make it a Jules Verne dick <laughs> joke, it's uh, that's at least gives it a little leg up. They thought it was twins when his mother had yeah, yeah. on the sonogram. On the yeah. sonogram, they yeah. thought it was twins. <laughs> yeah, and we did that right on yeah, the spot. I know. We, yeah, we, we're we're not ashamed to beat something to death. Yeah. Well, if if it's yielding stuff. How much of the episodes, when they're edited and they are finally color corrected and they're delivered to the network, 
What percentage of the lines would you say are new improvised lines and what percentage are exactly? We don't improvise at all. You don't allow anybody not to a say? Word, not a word, not a comma. We're not real a... control freaks and they know not to do it. And sometimes they'll ask, could I say this instead? And we'll say, no, <laughs> there's a reason why it's this instead and no. And they accept it. You guys have worked with Robin Williams, okay? Can you imagine Robin Williams going into the show and you telling him to say every word no. the way it is? No, and there's a lot of actors who, who can't and don't want to work that way. And some of the greatest movie scenes that you've seen and television scenes that you've seen in your entire careers have come from an yes. improvisation, yet you don't allow it. It's uncomfortable. We're not, we're, it's, that's just, we're not good at it. It's just not what we do. I also find watching it uncomfortable most of the time unless it's done really well it, it just feels arch to me it just feels fake it feels like people are improvising and and i think so often you know what what our little journey is with the script is to is to hone it and to edit it and to refine it and to change it and while yes sometimes people are brilliant and you get something spontaneous that's amazing i think sometimes you also, you're, you're seeing a first draft of a scene. If you're seeing an improvised scene, you're seeing the, 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 the version that just hasn't been refined and someone's got to in post try to shave. I mean, it's, it's those improv scenes. And as you say, it's the people who aren't great at it. Those scenes where you're hearing the actors sort of state the premise of the scene. Which, if you're, if you're writing a scene and rewriting a scene, you can find a defter way to do than to see a scene where someone comes in and goes, I'm mad at you because you took my water. And it's just. So in five years, you're mm -hmm. telling me that not one actor or each one of you said, you know, now that I'm watching this, instead of the word sea creature, I think we could add this line and be if, great. If That's never happened. If it happened at all, it was the two of us kind of having a little side bar mm -hmm. and, and saying, what if he just says blah, blah, blah. And then we'll go over and ask them to, to say it that way. But we don't ask them for suggestions. But Matt never no. cuddled with you. No, once in a while he'll say something and we'll go, no, no, <laughs> you can't say that. We're very controlling. We're and very that's, controlling. That's one of the joys of not having a writer. It's like show. a Broadway play. You don't change anything. Oh, no, we don't. I remember I was doing a pilot with Dave Chappelle for Disney of all places. And the president was Dean Valentine. Oh, I remember Dean sure. Valentine. And I remember this thing. His line was, I'm not a baby mom. And got a little bit of a laugh, but there's no real joke there or anything like that. But the way he was able sure. to deliver it. And I remember Dean Valentine walked up to him and he said, Dave, this line we've done it a couple of times. It's not really hitting. I trust you. Is there anything you think of to make it better? And he's like, I got it. Watch this next take. And he goes, I'm not a baby, mommy. Mm -hmm. And the crowd applauded and two letters. Sure, sure. He added to it, changed the dynamic of the whole scene of a whole writer's room of right. things. Well, but I think also there's a big difference when you're doing multi-camera than when you're doing single, single camera. camera. really is. Because when you're doing multi-camera, you're really, you're kind of... Uh, it's very much about getting that audience laugh. And, and that's when you absolutely need a writer's room. And I, I have a different writer's room experience than Jeff because I've been in 
like the friends room was a brilliant writer's room and and we would there we would spend hours on the stage beating jokes and trying to top jokes and and the actors would pitch jokes uh and it was just a very i mean that's a, just a very different animal than than when we're doing episodes where it's it's less about delivering that that kind of in the moment laugh. The thought process of anybody being wildly successful and not sitting on a beach with their toes in the sand is hard for any audience that listens to this podcast to understand. When I interviewed David Copperfield, he does 638 shows a year and he's 60 years old. And I share with him, why aren't you just taking it easy? And it's because if I take it easy, then you know what happens then, then I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I got to keep breathing. I used to wonder that too. When, when Mary Tyler Moore decided to end her show, I thought, well, sure, she doesn't have to work. She, and, and then she came back and I thought, why is she coming back? I don't understand what, there's no, she, but now I do understand. I mean, we were already talking about a new project and I'm excited about it. And it's when we're very lucky because we're yeah. doing something that we're, we're, we're I thank God, mm -hmm. good at and people seem to appreciate. And it's it's just emotionally rewarding. But I have a and feeling that if both of you had all the money in the world and the health of do. yourselves and your families. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And you could do any one of the shows you've done, you'd be doing this show. Depends. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, sure. I mean, I think the thing that success has also, knock on wood, allowed us to do is to work in a way that that's, I mean, that's that true. we're that we're able to say, okay, if we're doing a show, we're going to write it all ourselves, and it's going to take a longer time than it normally takes, and so you we can't we cannot deliver twenty two episodes in a seat. We just can't because it's just us in our little little kitchen. <laughs> writing and uh, like the cooking cram, up. You know, uh, the Cramden's kitchen. It's very similar. There's a little fire escape out the window, a little refrigerator, icebox. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just saying it's, I think it's, uh, that's kind of what, and we're able to do stuff that we want to do um, the and the way we want to do it. The part for me is, 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 well, David always says burning bridges, but is being able to stand up to these schmucks and, and not be afraid, uh, oh, you'll never work again. When Jeffrey's saying schmucks, I think that's a term that he's referring to network executives. Yeah. Yes, I am, in case you're wondering. <laughs> and you know who you are. I, well, we've, we've always said that Jeffrey writes for revenge. Well, I, only because they deserve it. They really deserve it. And I also feel like that burning bridges is fine if you're not going back to the other side of the bridge. You know what I mean? As long as you don't have to go back over it, Thank you, God. You know, and that I think that's what gives us. Well, that the, gives you. Well, it does. It makes yeah. it's, it's a huge kind of freedom that we're able to write under mm -hmm. with together. Hey, everybody. I'm really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water 
for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. All right, I want to go way, way, way back, okay? Take me through where you grew up, the socioeconomic dynamic of everything, the family life, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this business? David, I'll go with you first. Um, okay, grew up in suburban Philadelphia, um, and um, my parents, before I was born, uh, were both on television. Uh, in local TV, uh, they had a TV show in the 50s called The Mr. and Mrs. Show, which was a, uh, a live morning show um, where they had guests of like, like famous, like, like Lucy and Desi thing, and it had like a kitty section. And, uh, and then uh, I was born, and at which point my mother stopped uh, doing anything on television. So it was just a Mr. Show after that. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) My father had uh, a a long, he started out in live TV and he did everything. He did, uh, he was on a, uh, he was on a a Western show where he had to ride in on a horse. He was an announcer basically, but he was also, they had a, a, a show called Candy Carnival where acts would compete to, uh, uh, perform in Atlantic and City. Wasn't Ed McMahon the clown? Yes, Ed McMahon was the clown before... Uh, on his show, on yeah. his father's show. Anyway, and then he was a weatherman and he was an announcer and he did news and... and uh, uh, anyway, so I probably that was the first inspiration to sort of like, oh, I guess show business is... I mean, it wasn't like this kind of show business, but he was uh, in Philadelphia. He was kind of a big deal and it was exciting. What about you, Jeffrey? I, I just remember mostly living inside my head, you know, from from three. Just at night when my mother would tuck me in, I would do little productions with my fingers and and like production numbers. And this would be the star of the show and this would be the chorus boys. And I I would do whole productions every night before bed. And I would go, I walk around the neighborhood and, and interview myself. Where was that? I, I was born in Brooklyn and lived in Brooklyn until I was about seven years old. And um, we lived on one floor. My grandparents lived, we lived above my grandparents, who were both uh, old Jews, you know, and spoke Yiddish. And so I was raised with Yiddish. And... Um, 
I just, I just always lived in my imagination. And I think part of the reason I can do what I do so well is, is because I would talk to myself and do different characters and different voices. And so this is just an extension of that. And I do remember the first time my grandmother took me to the movies and we saw an Esther Williams movie. And she came out from, uh, but it was this magical production. And as a three and a half, four year old kid, I, I just was like blown away. And I just, I just loved living in this kind of fantasy world. And I still do pretty much, don't I? I think you do. Yeah. And so what was your first break in show business? first break in show business. Well, you know what happened is basically I got, I, I didn't know how I would get into it, but I knew I would somehow. And ultimately I, I became a copywriter, an advertising copywriter. And so I got to make commercials and that was like a little taste of showbiz and I liked it. And I just, it's, I guess Oprah would say it's, it's what, what is it when you picture what you want? You visualize. Yeah, I visualized before I knew there was such a thing as visualization. I mean, I've already won awards in my brain. I've got <laughs> speeches. I was, I could. But you've won the awards. I've already won them and gone home alone and been sad in the fantasy. Thank I've, you, Toadie Fields. Yeah, but that's exactly, that's so smart. That's exactly, that's exactly right. I used to, th my, my dream was I would be the youngest actor to ever win an Oscar. And I would get, <laughs> and I had the speech and I did the whole, th I'm not an actor, but I, that was the fantasy. And then I would go home by myself and have nobody, and that was part of the, the dream, this lonely life, this empty life, but I was bringing joy to the masses. It's so I'm sad. so sad. That's such a sad but story. It's, true. it's very true. If you're going to dream it, why not dream like you, 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 I, I get I it. No I happiness. Know. Like, that was it, that wasn't I know. a possibility. Wasn't a possibility. No, no, no. So how did you make it a possibility? What's the first break in scripted television? First break of meeting Nancy Josephson who was David's agent. And David was doing a, a musical version of Arthur. Nancy Josephs is one of the greatest uh, agents in the history of the business. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I met, and I met Nancy at uh, Goodspeed Opera House. She came to see David's play. And uh, she said, what do you do? And I thought, he didn't tell her. <laughs> and I told her, and she said, I'd love to read some of your stuff. And so I sent her the stuff. And then uh, it, was, it was immediate. It was like overnight. I, was all, I, I got a job with David on Dream On. Now, I won't want to share this as well. One of the most dangerous things for people in the representation business is to represent somebody who's in a relationship with somebody who's an existing client. Because if things go south, you're a dead man or woman walking. <laughs> you have to choose between one or the other and you're dead. Sometimes you immediately get fired because they don't even want the stain of the other person on you. So that was a huge risk for Nancy to take. Well, yeah, but I, had my writing not been up to par, I don't think she would have I agree. gone out of her I way. I think she would have found a, a clever way to she's avoid very, putting yeah, herself in that she, position. She's very good at that. But once that happened and you met mm -hmm. Kevin Bright, uh, 
I met Kevin and Kevin said, why don't you, why don't you try one? You know, Nancy says, you're terrific. Why don't you try a script? On spec, he asked you to do it. Yeah, and I did. And what did he say? It was great. And look, Jeffrey's insanely talented. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I, no, he is. Look, I, uh, I wouldn't be, I, 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 yeah, no. And I mean, look, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be writing together otherwise. It's, uh, you know, um, I, I think much like what you were just saying about Nancy, uh, if, if you were wonderful but not talented, uh, then yeah, I, I don't think uh, any of this would have happened. No, he's he's an amazing writer. So your episode is going to be produced and you've never even stepped foot. But that's how my life has been. I mean, when I went into advertising, I got a job. I went to Wells Rich Green, which was back then it, it, the place to be. They did plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what? And Virginia Slims. And they, I mean... That was Alka-Seltzer, the first one. Yes, thank you. Uh, uh, what else did they do? They came up with I Love New York. Uh, I mean, it was the place to be. It was Mary Wells Lawrence, and she had created the Braniff campaign. There was an airline named Braniff, and she ended up painting the planes different pastel colors and putting the um, flight attendants in, in Gucci outfits and with poochy scarves and I mean she kind of brought glamour back to flying and anyway long story short I got a job as not a gopher but in the traffic department which is buying time for commercials and I, I was sort of like uh, how to succeed in business I became I befriended the back then they were called secretaries to one of the top writers and she came into my office one afternoon and she said Carl Rosenberg's about to get fired go in and say you want his job and I said I don't know but I don't know she said just go and she literally pushed me into this office and the guy said we need a TWA ad a full page New York Times TWA ad we need it tomorrow morning here's the information you need to do and I went home and I did it and the next day I had a full page in the New York Times <laughs> and I was suddenly I had an office in the in the uh, GM building in this I mean it was just like overnight it was an overnight thing and suddenly I'm writing commercials where the day before I was buying traffic I was buying time for commercials so I've always been very fortunate and I've always been able to somehow parlay the opportunities. So they tell you they're going to produce your script. Now again, this is new territory even for me on the show. That's got to create a bad negative taste in the minds of the writers. You come in, you get one of their episodes. There's not a lot of episodes. So that takes money out of their pocket. No, it doesn't take money because most of them was, how did you, how was it done? It was against a, uh, the script deal and, and you, you, honestly, back then, I don't even, but you have to realize we had, for Dream On, the whole room was, like was about the number of people that are sitting in this room. It was, it was this... Seat of Our Pants show, uh, I think at that point in the second season, I think there was Martin, me, and Jeff Greenstein, Jeff Strauss. I think there were like five writers. Yeah. So it's, but none of us had really done anything before. Um, we were shooting it out in a warehouse <laughs> in way North Hollywood. Uh, we were 
HBO's that we were only their, their second, second comedy. The first one was with uh, OJ. The first and ten mm-hmm. created yeah. by the director Marty Colner, believe it or not. Is that true? Yes. How do you determine what your credit is? Obviously, you're not writing a script and then they're like, okay, take off, write us another one from your kitchen. I was a... Uh, uh, for your first a story editor story editor that was my first credit Got story yeah. editor. okay and it again because i have the voices in my head i could i just it it just was a great fit i knew what they sounded like and i could just pitch out stuff and, so greenstein and strauss they weren't in a back room going what the fuck well, man they probably <laughs> were no i don't think so i mean there wasn't it was it, it was that whole show was it was a, the best first experience for all of us. It was just this Probably like nursery school. It really was, and we because w- when we first w- when Martin and I first sold it, it was our first show, and we'd never been we'd never been on a show before. We'd never been in a writers' room, and so everything we were doing was. Uh, we were kind of making it up as we went along. So there wasn't that, that kind of like old school, who gets what scripts, what are the feet? I mean, it, it had a kind of crazy, just kids with a barn sort of energy to it that was fantastic. So David, what was your first break in the business? That. Uh, that, that was your first <laughs> well, break. Well, no, no, not entirely, but close to it. Um, Martin and I did theater in college. And Marta then, Kaufman. Right, and then we were doing theater in New York. And we were doing this play off Broadway, and again, it's Nancy Josephson. Nancy, who is an, just starting out as an agent, uh, came and saw the play, and she said, "Have you guys ever thought about doing TV?" And we went, "Nope," because we really hadn't. Unlike Jeffrey, who had this fully formed fantasy, uh, Martin and I were were like trying to get a show on Broadway, uh, and television hadn't even crossed our radar and what was great about Nancy was she she didn't insist that we do it the way you're supposed to get into television which is you come out here you get a job on a show you you start out as a junior writer and after a number of years you write she said okay we said we we weren't ready to leave New York and she said come up with some ideas for shows and she started so we did and we started flying back and forth out here pitching pitching shows we'd never been on a show uh, and then ultimately, she we still hadn't gotten anything produced, but she got us a deal with Norman Lear, who had a company at that point uh, called Act Three. Uh, and so we we flew out here and tried to sell stuff through him, and 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 then we got a phone call because we one of those trips of going back and forth um, was we met with some executives from Universal and they sat us down and they showed us 10 minutes of black and white footage and they said of like old TV shows and they said what would you do with this they had no idea Um, and people apparently had been pitching game shows and all kinds of things and now they're down to bottom of the barrel it's musical theater writers from New York Uh, and so we pitched it's a sitcom and these black and white clips are his thoughts and John Landis was attached to the project and he liked it so then we pitched it out and HBO bought it and we get a phone call one day we moved out here and we're trying to sell things and we get a phone call like it's happening and suddenly we're running a TV show and we've never been on a show we've never been in a room 
nothing. So that was that was really it. But see, I, that's the same thing for me. Is is I've never done things in a orthodox way. Right. I've always been. I, it's lucky, I think. You know, and when people ask me, it's like I I I can't tell you because I didn't do all the things you're supposed to do. Have you guys in this business? ever had the feeling when you got home at night and you're sitting in the fetal position on your couch <laughs> where you said to each other god this business kicked the shit out of me today what's the last thing that happened where you felt like the business crushed you like a bug and you couldn't control well, it well what's crushing us right now is is trying to get showtime to promote our final season you would think that they would do that willingly since we're their only comedy. We get the best reviews of all of their other comedies. We've been nominated for every award year after year, but for some reason we can't get them to really promote okay, us. Let's pretend okay. that we can see behind closed doors. Just if you could look mm -hmm. in those corner offices where the president network and everybody, mm -hmm. you got your show, it's getting reviews, you want to compete with Netflix and get buzz. In your opinion, without making a joke, right. what's happening in those offices for that smart person in that corner office to justify not saying to the department, hey, let's put a few billboards out, let's put some other commercials here, let's spend some money here and do this. Well, I could, when we first came to Showtime, we, we had already sold to the BBC, but the money that they were offering for production wasn't enough to actually shoot anything. So Nancy Josephson, again, suggested, she said, I know you don't want to have anything to do with American networks, but what if we go to an HBO or a Showtime where they'll leave you alone, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll chip in some money and, and you'll be able to make your passion project. And so we said, uh, okay, and we met with Bob Greenblatt. We had already written the episodes. Bob, who's now the president of NBC. Right, and, and he was lovely and got very enthusiastic. What we didn't realize was five seconds after he bought our show, he went to NBC, immediately went to NBC. And suddenly uh, we inherited uh, David Nevins who is a smart, terrific guy, but I think he looks at us like a stepfather looks at his second wife's children. I think he loves us like a stepfather loves a second wife's children. And, and that's all I can Im imagine it is. It's a common thing for a network president to come in and there's things on the docket that weren't theirs and they don't necessarily promote those shows as much as they want to promote the ones that they were yeah, on. Yeah, I, I get it. And I think also, I think also part of it has to do with, um, it, yeah, it's new shiny things. It's, you know, we're, we're not a new shiny thing. And, and I think our show does well for them, but I don't think it, it's never been, it's never gotten Homeland numbers. But they also but, have never promoted us like they promote ho Homeland. In fairness to David, mm -hmm. he could have easily canceled your show a year after it's done. He show. loves our show. That's, that's the, the irony. But that's, but that's the point I was trying to make is that I think 
Yes, and I think there, you're right in that there is a cause and effect. Uh, but, you know, and I feel like uh, it's... The hope is they're going to come along with some new thing that's going to just light the world on fire. And I think that's always where they're going to throw their, their promotional money. Um, and... Uh, and it's, uh, you know, look, it's frustrating because the thing that people ask us all the time, what's the difference between when we started doing this and now? And I think more than anything, it's the number of shows that are in just in the universe now. There's just, it's so hard to get seen and noticed and all that clutter. I mean, we always say we're like, you'll be driving down Sunset and you'll see a billboard for a show that you've never heard of. Coming back for its third season on a platform you've never heard yeah, of. Yeah, you're like, oh, it's like, here's the bottle, and it's it, on, on, the, on the broom network. And you're like, it's, what is that network? Where do I even go to yeah. find it? Is it on my phone? What is, and so it's just in all of that, it's, that's, it's all about getting And it. I guess in my little mind, when I thought of, of doing <laughs> Which this, could be the title of our next in thing. In my little mind, the, the fantasy is, you get to do what you've always dreamed of doing and then you do it really well knock on wood and then the one part i didn't expect was that i'd be buried you know that the show would be kind of buried and i i just assumed that if if you did something well you'd be celebrated for it. And yes, we are celebrated by the press and and on fans and stuff but you would think that your mommy and daddy would love you more and for some reason but you're the kind of guy who i visualize mm -hmm. has no problem jeffrey picking up the phone oh, and no, calling no. mr nevins yes and saying i just want to ask you an honest question we did that he told us well he did i know oh but I, this is where yes, this is where sean and beverly but i was threatened not to discuss this is where sean stuff. sean and beverly become sean and beverly yeah. because beverly will will and this is where i be as sean yeah he's I, I hate conflict i hate discomfort and i'm my feeling is we didn't have any of that uh, until recently and it didn't get us anywhere being nice and, and going along with the, the, the... But he gave you an honest answer yeah. that you can't tell me. No, no. Because uh, this is... But that's okay. But he gave you an honest yeah, answer. He did. Oh, yeah. No, he's... And I, did I, you agree with his answer? I didn't agree with it. I, I, was, I was shocked and upset and pissed off. But he, yeah, he was very straightforward yeah. once we got him to be straightforward. Now, because he was straightforward and if he ever came to you and said, listen, when this show ends, I want you to create another show for us, would you do it? And, and never in a million years. Even though he was straightforward and honest. No, because he's on the other side of that bridge. He's, he, I would never, and now he knows this. No, never. It's not worth it. To, we did something terrific. This is killing him, but it's I killing don't care. Him. Yeah. I don't care. And I've been biting my tongue for the last couple of years. And it's, it's, it's really annoying and sad and frustrating. And I don't know what else to say. Dave Chappelle, he has no social networking. He's not on Twitter. He doesn't have a Facebook page. The guy puts 16 dates up at Radio City Music Hall. There's no ads. There's no billboards. Mm -hmm. He puts them up an hour later, 120,000 seats are sold out right. because people know how great he is and how he's going to be, most people. 
I don't care how good the food is at your restaurant. If, if people don't know it's there, you're going to be cooking for yourself. Now, every time we talk about restaurants, you always do the exact same and the opposite analogy. Yeah, I've changed it. <laughs> I'm, I realize it doesn't matter how good your food is. I'm going to take you to task, okay? The Waldorf Astoria just opened up yeah. two weeks ago. There's no ad. There's no radio. There's no promote. Uh, I just went. Somebody told me that they're open. I went to have a drink. It's like you can't even move in I, th I think the TV, yeah, the TV business is just Different. not like that. It's just there are too many shows. I think when there were three, four networks, absolutely. Word of mouth could carry you everywhere. Uh, but I think now, no, it's, there's just too much. There's too much product. There are too many shows. There's just how many times are we just we, – we look at, at uh, the trades and you're, you're flipping through and you're like, oh, this show's back and that show's back. And we've never heard of these shows. It's just there's too it's much It's interesting. Product. Now, instead of watching TV, we'll, we'll sit down in front of the TV and we'll, we'll go to Netflix and we'll just scan through all the choices and that will be our evening. We'll go, no. <laughs> eh, what is that? No. Tell us your three – favorite shows that you don't write we like uh i'm in the valley yes uh handmaid's tale yes uh the crown blew us away love the crown um you uh, love uh game, game of, of thrones. thrones yeah i could watch game of thrones every and day i love for the rest all the housewives <laughs> i want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that i worked on called i killed jfk it's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name of somebody. You say what comes to mind. Could be a word. It could be a sentence. Could be a story. Could be anything. Robin Williams. Uh, he did. He did Friends, and um, we we met with him and Billy Crystal, and they were great. But it was so interesting because Robin Williams. For we we met for about 20 minutes to talk about what they might want to do in the show, and whatever. And Billy Crystal is so accessible, and Robin Williams for the entire time we were together never spoke in his own voice, and you just you were just aware that that's he just he because we he was meeting us for the first time, and I'm sure around people he knew he was different, but clearly out of his discomfort, he was always doing voices the entire time. He was Tony Fields off stage. Yeah, I'm sure. That's very true. I like the way you brought that around. I have so many callbacks. I have callback waiting. <laughs> Jennifer Aniston. She was great. I mean, we, she was just a wonderful, talented, brilliant. There's a case of somebody taking your words and like doing stuff that you never in a million years can, could imagine. You know, she just, it was like a perfect fit. She just yeah in a role that could have been so off-putting yeah because when you first met Rachel she was this spoiled and and we heard a lot of women read for that part and just you didn't like the character and then she came and had all that warmth and and broke your heart and all that stuff. Yeah.
Norman Lear. Told me I was going bald. Um, <laughs> first time we met him, um, there was a picture on his desk. He was very young and he had hair. And so somehow the conversation when Marta sort of commented on it and he said, oh yeah, in the beginning, I just started losing it a little like David. And at this point, <laughs> I had no idea I was going bald. And I was like, what? And as soon as we left the meeting, I rushed to look in the rearview mirror of the car going, holy shit, he's right. I'm going bald. <laughs> Norman Lear. <laughs> Courtney Cox. The nicest, not only actor, but person I've ever met. I've never, she is Earth Mother. She couldn't be more caring and compassionate and down to earth and unaffected. Yeah, she's the nicest Just person. Just the ever. loveliest human being. Network television versus cable television. I think there's less difference than there used to be. I think most of the network people have kind of gravitated over to cable and streaming platforms and streaming platforms because there, there's just so much stuff going on that they have to they have to kind of um, sort of cannibalize cannibalize yeah. yeah and so I think that that could be the the downfall of this golden age because the same people who kind of destroyed television the first time. <laughs> are now uh, just coming over to do their their deeds uh, on on cable and other platforms. Marta Kaufman. Oh God, Mar Marta, Marta, and I. Uh, Marta's like my sister. Uh, I mean, we uh, we we sort of we met in college and. Um, uh, didn't neither of us knew when we met that we wanted to even be writers, and so we you should uh, have talked to me. I would have told you. <laughs> you knew. I didn't know. We didn't. Martin and I thought we wanted to be actors, and we met doing a play, and then uh, we just started writing together. And uh, yeah, she's she's one of my favorite people. Did you guys ever book a role? No, I in college I had the good sense to know I should absolutely stop doing this. Did you guys ever do a cameo on anything? Oh, you did a lot. Uh, I, you, if, if you look very stinky on, yes. On. And I had one line on dream on. If you look very carefully at some moments of friends, you might see corners of me. Uh, um, I used to do it on, uh, on, uh, mad about you. I try to get in as many times. Yeah. As you, possible. you, and you like it more than I do. I don't, it makes me nervous. I'm, I'm happy to, to not be doing it anymore. No, I'm like the Lucy Ricardo of our family. I mean, I just want to be in the show. Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt. Paul Reiser is a lot like Matt LeBlanc in that I think he's people underestimate how talented he is and what a really terrific actor he is and, and smart and just a mensch. And, and Helen is, uh, Helen's wonderful. Helen is a genius. You know, I mean, there's another case of somebody who acts what you write and, and, and makes it even more delicious. And, and 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 adds brings heart and soul and comic timing like you, you know, I mean just amazing, just amazing. I mean we've worked with such wonderful. Yeah, people. we're very lucky. So so many brilliant people, and that's 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 the thrill of this whole job. Yeah, 
Matthew Perry. Until we heard him read the words, we thought, oh, this part sucks. And we thought when, when we were writing the original pilot, we thought, oh, well, Ch Chandler's going to be the easiest part because it's a lot of like real hard jokes. And then it turns out, no, it, they're really hard, these jokes. And until he came in, uh, we thought we're going to have to completely rewrite this role. And then he read it, and it was just magical. He had little Cinderella feet. <laughs> it was perfect, a perfect fit. Brian Ben Ben. Oh, God. Uh, Brian is also, I mean, he was the, uh, just, he was the star of Dream On, and he was, and he was in, he had to be in every scene, because the show was about his thoughts. So he had to be in every scene, and yet, uh, you you never got tired of watching him. And Wendy Malick, that was Wendy's first real yeah. part. And, and the same kind of thing. I loved writing for Wendy. Yep. Lisa Kudrow. Oh. I worked with Lisa on Mad About You. And uh, I remember saying to her, there's this part on Friends that you may not want to go for it because it's sort of... Ursula, she played the waitress Ursula on, on Man About You. I said, but I think I think you can do it. And she said, really? I said, yeah, 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 go, just go. I'll tell David. And, and so she went. Yeah, and again, that's someone, she comes in, she reads it, and you're like, well, we've, we've got Phoebe, done. And she's, by the way, one of the smartest, oh, yeah. like in, in real life, just one of the smartest people you will ever meet. Kevin Bright. Oh God, uh, Kevin! Uh, Kevin's a doll. He was our. We just saw Kevin. Yeah, at Matt LeBlanc's fiftieth. Oh, we dropped another one. Yeah, there but you go. Kevin is <laughs> sort of the was the unsung hero of 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 Friends, and he did. Uh, he directed a ton of them, and he edited all of them. Kevin's who, when I learned how important the editor's job is, because we do the show on Friday nights and it would get laughs out your ass. I mean, audiences loved it. Then we'd see the first cut and it was like, eh, what happened? It was so funny on stage. And then Kevin would take a pass at it, would recut it. And suddenly the laughs were back and you, everything worked and fit together, put the puzzle together. And that's such a tough job and, and you have to have such a yeah. finely tuned brain to be able to to save all that humor yeah and he's also he's a really good producer i mean he was, he was a great partner great money guy awesome mad leblanc yeah. he's he's the sort of he's your dream of what you want to star in your show i mean he because he's collaborative and uh incredibly professional and shows up every day spot on every word every comma he knows it He's made choices. Yeah. Uh, he can he can give you choices between takes. I mean, he's and an incredibly nice guy and a penis <laughs> like a sea creature. Your proudest moment in show business? I don't think oh. we've had it yet. Oh God! I, I mean, I, uh, oh, I know. We're, we're, all right, the, we were having dinner with uh, Dad and and Marlon, mm -hmm. and it was it was. Um, Early on in the Friends, uh, during the f beginning of the first season, first season, and we were sitting around the table having dinner, and I heard some couple at the table behind us say, "And then this guy Chandler says," and he starts quoting Chandler, and I said to David, 
our lives are never going to be the same. Yeah, it was the first time that we'd heard someone actually talking about, because the show had just come on. And somehow said, I just knew yeah. when I heard that, I thought, oh my God, it's real. Your biggest disappointment in show business. Mart and I, um, our first script that we, we somehow, oh, because we managed to sell a script. We were still living in New York on a terrible show. Um, we had done theater with Jason Alexander, who hadn't done Seinfeld yet. And uh, he, he was on a TV show and he managed to introduce us to the showrunners. And so we managed to sell a script. This was our, we sold the script and we didn't understand. So we wrote our draft, we were so excited and we go to the night that they're gonna shoot it. And we didn't understand, cause we knew nothing, that the room gets to rewrite your script. We thought they were gonna do the script we wrote. And we showed up and the only word that, was, that we had written was the word decaf. Yeah, decaf. decaf. And Martin and I sit there and we're just like scene after scene. It's completely rewritten, um, and uh, and uh, it was devastating. And we came away, and the the positive thing was we went. You know what? Let's not give our scripts to anyone else. Let's just do them ourselves. And that was it. Awesome. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person in the world who's doing finger dances on the wall in their bedroom or who essentially is working around their parents seeing how things go and how do they get to the point where they're able to have the kind of career that you guys have had and i want to say one other thing if you can slip it in because you've seen so many actors and actresses like you think about the actors for friends and you know an actor who tested for each one of these roles who didn't get it. And sometimes you'll see them pop up in a show where they'll be a lead in something else or they'll be a movie star and you'll be like, holy crap, I said no to that person, but they persevered afterwards. So what advice also besides for that, do you have for young actors and actresses going into rooms and how to get to the next level too? That's a two part question. I, I don't know how actors do it. I really don't. That, that's part of the game is just rejection. And, and you'd be shocked to see the people who come up, come up for auditions. I mean, people who start in their own shows and they're sitting out there with the rest of the actors with their little page and it's kind of heartbreaking because you think oh my god you you were the huge star two years ago and now you're reading from me so um, that's the least inspiring well I can't inspire <laughs> I, you know, and especially because of the way it happened for me I, I, there is no set way I think all I would say is Believe in yourself and just keep doing what you're doing. I mean, I always, I always say that to people. I, I've changed careers three or four times in my life, and I don't think it's ever too late if you're willing to to bust your ass and and do whatever it takes. And you you may not you may not start off at the top, but so what? Get your foot in the door and and just be there and make connections and learn the craft and I don't know Hallelujah. <laughs> and I don't know what else I would say well in terms of your question about actors I would say it's the flip side of your Cinderella slipper uh, that if you don't get the job it isn't really necessarily about you it just it's not that you're not talented or great it just may be it's that it's not the, it's not the perfect fit for this specific right. part because if from our side uh, we're like 
praying that one person out of the, let's call it 300 people reading for this part, that the one person will walk through the door. The other 299 people are not going to get it. And it's not because they're not necessarily great. It's oh, just they're not. Them. Right. But, but. Yeah. Uh, exactly right. And, and for people like us and our journey, it's just say yes to everything. You do not know which is the, of the things that are going to float your way, that are going to lead to something else. There's so much luck and serendipity. And if you just keep saying yes to things, eventually one of them may very well turn into... I, that's what I, I say about everything in life. Like a, a lot of girls I know will say, oh, so-and-so wants to fix me up with this guy and he looks like a Muppet. Nothing. So what? So you'll have a fun puppet show. I mean, just go see what happens. You never know, and you don't, and you never know the one. Who, you can meet one person, and through that person, you meet the other person who will change your life forever. And that's 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 mm -hmm. what I've noticed about life. <laughs> there you go. It's true. I know. You guys are extraordinary. I've had an amazing time. Episodes, final season, sadly. If you haven't seen this show, if it made me laugh, believe me, it's going to make you laugh. These guys are so talented, and the actors are so talented, and it's been an honor to this was interview. Great. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on John Paul Fower, July 15, 2013. All right, that was just when I started. Now we've done over 200 episodes. This is bringing back a blast from the past. The headline reads, No Biting Man! Exclamation points, home run, cats is a hit. Love the episode with a million exclamation points, five stars. Wow, thank you so much for that headline. And the comment reads, Barry Katz is my life coach, exclamation point again. No biting man. <laughs> I should tell you that comes from a point where Jay Moore came to my house and the dog almost attacked him. And I said, no biting man. And he said on the air, and now everybody says no biting man in my voice anyway congratulations john paul fower you are a winner special thanks to our new sponsor aqua true with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology check it out go to industrystandardwater.com takes you directly to their website type in the code 100 save yourself a hundred dollars I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Never.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.